Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Friday, September 22nd, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today, Zelensky gets more cluster bombs in D.C. visit. So President Biden on Thursday met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and announced a new tranche of U.S. military aid for Ukraine that includes more cluster bombs, which are notorious for killing and maiming civilians. So this arms package that he announced that we expected uh, to be announced is worth $325 million, And it uses the Presidential Drawdown Authority, which allows the U.S. to ship arms directly from Pentagon stockpiles. So these funds are being pulled from the billions of dollars that became available after the Pentagon said that it overvalued previous arms shipments to Ukraine. So this so-called accounting error freed up an additional $6.2 billion for the U.S., to send Ukraine. And I believe this is the third time they've dipped into that money. So they just found some money so they could keep fueling this proxy war. So these cluster bombs known as dual purpose improved conventional munitions are being provided in the form of 155 millimeter artillery rounds, which, you know, they're fired and they spread the small submunitions that are packed into the artillery shell, you know, over a large area. And this arms package also includes air defense systems, HIMARS ammunition, other artillery rounds, and other equipment. When announcing the arms package, President Biden said that the first batch of Abrams tanks will be delivered to Ukraine next week. So that's another escalation of U.S. support. The tanks will be armed with depleted uranium rounds, which is a toxic ammunition that is linked to cancer and birth defects in the places that it has been used. So we're sending cluster bombs, depleted uranium, destroying Ukraine's land, leaving hazards for civilians for years to come. So according to the Pentagon, this $325 million arms package includes, these are the full contents, uh, AIM-9M missiles for air defense, additional HIMARS ammunition, Avenger air defense systems, 50 caliber machine guns, 155 millimeter artillery rounds, including the cluster bombs, 105 millimeter artillery rounds, tow missiles, Javelin and AT-4 anti-tank systems, over 3 million rounds of small arms ammunition, over 3, sorry, I just said that, uh, 59 light tactical vehicles, demolitions munitions for obstacle clearing, spare parts, maintenance, and other field equipment. So lots of stuff headed Ukraine's way. And the U.S. sent its first, so this is the second shipment of cluster bombs, and we don't know exactly how many of these artillery shells that they're shipping over there. When the Pentagon first announced it, they said they're going to give them hundreds of thousands of these shells. Um, so I assume it's somewhere in the hundreds of thousands and, and uh, that Ukraine is receiving. But this is the second time that they were announced as part of a U.S. weapons package for Ukraine. The first time was in July. And this is something I've mentioned a lot, but I think it's an important point to send these cluster bombs to Ukraine. President Biden actually had to bypass a U.S. law that prohibits the transfer of cluster munitions with a higher than 1% dud rate. And the dud rate refers to the percentage of the small submunitions or bomblets, as they call them 
that are scattered, and the dud rate is the percentage of them that does not explode. Um, so it's estimated that these cluster bombs the U.S. is sending have has a dud rate of about 14%, so much higher than 1%, and they're packed, each artillery shell is packed with 72 submunitions, so that's about 10 of them are expected not to explode, and if they're using hundreds of thousands of them, you know, they're going to leave millions uh, of these bomblets behind. So to get around this law, President Biden invoked an obscure provision of the Foreign Assistance Act that allows the U.S. to provide weapons regardless of export controls if the president determines that doing so is a vital national security interest. And I don't see how fueling a proxy war with a nuclear armed power by sending weapons that you know are notorious for killing and maiming civilians, I don't get how that uh, furthers U.S. national security. It doesn't make much much sense to me. Um, so there's that. More cluster bombs on the way. And the next one here, the Pentagon exempts Ukraine operations from government shutdown. So this story is not much of a surprise. Uh, the Pentagon will exempt its operations supporting Ukraine in the war against Russia from a government shutdown that will happen if Congress fails to pass a funding bill by September 30th. So during government shutdowns, the U.S. military typically suspends activities that are deemed not vital to U.S. national security. But Pentagon spokesman Chris Sherwood told Politico on Thursday that U.S. support for Ukraine would not be suspended. He said, quote, Operation Atlantic Resolve is an accepted activity under a government lapse in appropriations. End quote. So Sherwood, so he used the name Operation Atlantic Resolve, and that is the name for U.S. military activity in Europe since 2014 that has come in response to events inside Ukraine. 2014 was the year that the U.S. backed the coup that ousted former President Viktor Yanukovych. After that uh, happened, Russia annexed Crimea and the civil war in the Donbass region was sparked. Um, so since then, they've had this mission going on, Operation Atlantic Resolve. So U.S. support for Ukraine includes training of Ukrainian forces both inside the U.S. and in Europe. It includes arm shipments and providing targeting intelligence and probably other types of support that we might not know about. Um, if you remember, just two days earlier, this guy Sherwood told Politico that U.S. support for Ukraine might be hindered by a shutdown. But the Pentagon has decided to exempt this activity, and that decision came after Zelensky met. Uh, Zelensky actually visited the Pentagon as part of his visit to D.C., and he met with Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. And then the Pentagon comes out and says, uh, "Don't wor don't worry, no matter what, you know, we're going to keep this war going." And the Pentagon said that Austin met with Zelensky to reaffirm the steadfast U.S. support for Ukraine. So the exemption really demonstrates the importance the Biden administration has placed on fueling this proxy war in Ukraine. And again, this is all being done in the name of national security, but all this is doing is putting the country, our country, the United States, um, at greater risk. All right, so the next one here, 28 Republicans tell Biden that they're against more Ukraine aid. So a group of 28 Republicans in the House and Senate released a letter to the White House on Thursday that said they are opposed to authorizing more spending on the Ukraine war. 
as Zelensky was in Washington. So these Republicans said that there were too many unanswered questions related to what the U.S. goals were in Ukraine and how long the conflict will last. They wrote, quote, for these reasons and certainly until we receive answers to the questions above and others forthcoming, we oppose the additional expenditure for you for war in Ukraine included in your request, end quote. So President Biden has asked for an additional $24 billion for Ukraine, which would bring total U.S. spending on the proxy war to about $137 billion. Huge amount. The White House and Democrats in Congress, they want to include the money in a funding bill that needs to be passed before the September 30th deadline to avert a government shutdown. But that prospect right now seems unlikely. The Republican-controlled House is battling over spending levels. They've failed to move forward uh, the Pentagon funding bill. And and, uh, McCarthy, the House Speaker, did not include the $24 billion in new Ukraine aid in the House's stopgap funding bill that would avert the shutdown. Um, But that bill is not expected to be passed anyway. Enough Republicans are just against the spending levels. So uh, it just doesn't seem like they're going to get this Ukraine aid anytime soon. I believe it will ultimately get approved, but it's just not going to happen as quickly as the White House would like. Uh, There's even some Republicans in the House who support spending more on the Ukraine war, but they say it's not a priority since the Pentagon still has billions to to use to ship weapons that was made available by this so-called Pentagon accounting error. Um, so I thought that was interesting. A few uh, members of the House said that. And, you know, it's just a much different situation in Washington uh, than when the last time Zelensky visited. When he visited in December 2022, he received a hero's welcome. He addressed Congress. Um, what is interesting is McCarthy said that he declined a request for the Ukrainian leader to address a joint session of Congress, saying that they don't have the time. So I think it really goes to show, even though a lot of these Republicans are still favor supporting the war, um, it's just not their priority right now. It's not what they're focused on. There's so much other stuff going on. On the other hand, over in the Senate, which I haven't talked about too much, you know, you have Mitch McConnell who said, you know, arming Ukraine is the most important priority for Republicans, which is just totally insane. Uh, But in the House, there's just enough fighting and other things going on that they're just not going to ram this thing through like they did before. And instead of a dramatic speech in D.C., Zelensky held a closed-door meeting with dozens of senators and separate talks with some members of the House, and Politico reported that Ukraine aid skeptics were not swayed by the Ukrainian leader's visit. Um, So it's definitely a different atmosphere than the last time. And the situation on the battlefield, the the stalling counteroffensive and everything, uh, is different than the last time he was there. All right, so the next one here, Russia says that it downed 19 drones over Crimea and the Black Sea. So the Russian Defense Ministry said on Thursday that its forces downed 19 Ukrainian drones over the Black Sea and Crimea as Kiev has stepped up attacks on the peninsula amid its faltering counteroffensive. So the Russian Defense Ministry said that they also downed three drones over other areas of uh, Russia. Uh, but the main attack was really on Crimea and the Black Sea. Uh, I put a map in this story here from Southfront that shows the increased Ukrainian attacks, uh, different areas where Ukraine has launched attacks on Crimea in the past few days. 
And, you know, they've really stepped up their attacks on Crimea just in the past, you know, week or two. And of course, that always risks a big escalation of the war. We know Crimea is a big red line for Russia. And Russia believes all these operations are being assisted by the U.S. and NATO. When it comes to the drone attacks, there was a report from The Economist that said the Ukrainian drone attacks on Russian territory often use intelligence gathered by Kiev's Western backers, which is not a surprise. And there's also been recent Ukrainian, well, reports at least, of the Ukrainians using the British-provided storm-shadowed missiles to strike targets in Crimea. And, you know, those, the, the UK providing those missiles, and France also provided their version, the Scout missile, which is basically the same thing as far as I understand it. It was a big escalation. They have a range of 155 miles, and they can be fired from Ukraine's fighter jets. Um, so it put more targets inside Crimea in range, and it looks like they've been using them. So, you know, NATO facilitated strikes on Crimea. I mean, it's just something, you know, a few years ago, we couldn't imagine that we would be at this point. You'd think that the risk of escalation, the risk of nuclear war would be too much for NATO, but it's just not. They just don't seem to care. All right, so the next one here, General Defense Prediction of War with China by 2025. So the four-star general in charge of the U.S. Air Force's Air Mobility Command has defended a memo that he sent to his officers earlier this year where he predicted that the U.S. would be at war with China in 2025. General Mike Minihan said last week when he was asked about his prediction, quote, my assessment is that war is not inevitable, but the readiness I'm driving with that timeline is absolutely essential to deterrence and absolutely essential to the decisive victory. There needs to be tension on readiness more than just be ready tonight. You need to have readiness that drives urgency. The urgency and the action are paramount, end quote. So he noted that in the memo, he said that he hoped he was wrong. Uh, but still, I mean, it, it was a very incendiary memo that he sent to his officers. He ordered them to be prepared for a fight with China. And, you know, the Pentagon has distanced itself from that timeline, basically saying, oh, we don't, you know, agree that we're going to be at war in 2025. The U.S. is openly preparing for a direct war with China by building up its forces in the Asia Pacific and increasing military support for Taiwan. And U.S. military leaders are open about that. That's, that's what they're doing. That that's They're saying that they're getting ready to win a war with China, which I would argue that nobody could, you know, will win because there's just the risk of nuclear escalation. It's just too much of a risk. And even without that, there'll be huge naval battles and thousands and thousands of Americans, tens of thousands of Americans possibly could be killed in just the first few weeks. Um, so Minion's prediction is that the war would be sparked over a Chinese move on Taiwan. So this is from the memo uh, that, again, he sent earlier this year. It was dated February 1st. And he said, quote, my gut tells me we will fight in 2025. Uh, Xi Jinping secured his third term and set his war council in October 2022. Taiwan's presidential elections are in 2024 and will offer Xi a reason U.S. presidential elections are also in 2024 and will offer Xi a distracted America. Xi's team, reason, and opportunity are all aligned for 2025, end quote. The memo included several orders for Air Mobility Command personnel, including getting their personal affairs in order. I thought this line was kind of the most ominous because he's talking about, you know, get your, get, 
get things in order in case we have to go to war. He said, quote, all AMC personnel will consider their personal affairs and whether a visit should be scheduled with their servicing base legal office to ensure they are legally ready and prepared, end quote. Um, so just not a good sign that you have for a four-star general talking like that. All right, so the next one here, the U.S. deploys drone ships near China for the first time. So two U.S. Navy drone ships have arrived in Yokosuka, Japan, marking the first U.S. deployment of unmanned vessels aimed at China in the Western Pacific. So the U.S. Navy's 7th Fleet announced that they arrived in Japan on September 18th. Uh, They made the announcement on Thursday. And the Wall Street Journal first reported on the the deployment and noted that the vessels are testing surveillance and attack capabilities in the region that the U.S. Navy will find useful against China. The drone ships are not equipped with missiles, but they are capable of carrying and launching them. The 7th Fleet said that the two ships were participating in Integrated Battle Problem, which is a Pacific Fleet exercise designed to test develop and evaluate the integration of unmanned platforms into fleet operations to create war fighting advantages. So the U.S. has previously deployed smaller drone boats to the Middle East to patrol the uh, waters near Iran, and but much smaller than, than these, and they're less sophisticated. And these two ships that they deployed, uh, one is called the Ranger, one is called the Mariner, and they are considered, their classification is unmanned surface vessels, USVs. And they're part of a program known as Ghost Fleet Overlord that started in 2018 to integrate drone ships into the Navy. And they are capable of operating unmanned. Uh, at least the Ranger uh, has a crew on it. They said that there's 16 uh, Navy personnel on there for monitoring purposes. And they said the Ranger is 190 feet long, which isn't too big, but, um, you know, for an unmanned vessel, you know, that's, that's a decent size. And the U S is really investing heavily in new weapons, technologies as part of its preparations for war with China. So I think drone boats, drone ships is something that, uh, we might see a lot of. All right. So the next one here, Netanyahu and NBS, MBS suggest normalization progress. So this article is from Connor Freeman at the Libertarian Institute, and he says that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman have expressed confidence that a Washington-brokered normalization agreement between Tel Aviv and Riyadh is becoming more likely as negotiations continue apace. So what's interesting about this is that Netanyahu and the Israelis have sounded positive about this for a while, kind of just trying to act like... uh, This is something that might happen when other people have been more skeptical that the Saudis would really normalize with Israel, you know, anytime soon. But what's interesting here is that you have MBS saying it, Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, the de facto ruler. He just did a interview with um, Fox News and he said that every day we get closer to a normalization agreement. So I think that is pretty significant. And there was a report recently in Saudi media, a Saudi newspaper reported that the Saudis pulled out of the normalization talks with Israel, but MBS said that that was not true. And remember the price that the, for, for, the, for Americans, for the U.S., 
what the Saudis are asking for to normalize with Israel is a mutual defense pact, uh, you know, making them an ally, a treaty ally. Uh, and U.S. officials have compared it to South Korea and Japan, which is kind of strange because, you know, the big thing about the South Korea-Japan alliance is that the U.S. has tens of thousands of troops and tons of bases in those countries, which we don't have in Saudi Arabia. So the officials compared it to that, but at the same time said that the U.S. isn't planning some big presence in Saudi Arabia. Right now, there's about 2,700 U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, and then the, over in Japan, you know, there's over 30,000, you know, there's tons of troops. Um, but anyway, this is just something that seems to be progressing faster than a lot of people expected. And it's something that Biden wants to clinch uh, before the 2024 election. All right, the next one here, Australian MPs in U.S. call for Assange's freedom. A delegation of Australian members of parliament met with U.S. officials in Washington on Wednesday and called for the release of WikiLeaks founder and Australian citizen Julian Assange, who faces up to 175 years in prison if extradited to the U.S. and convicted for exposing U.S. war crimes. So the delegation included six MPs from different ends of the political spectrum, all different political parties, and it's a major show of unity uh, aimed at freeing Assange. More than 60 Australian MPs also signed a letter in support of the trip and called for the U.S. to drop the charges against the WikiLeaks founder. After the meeting, uh, sorry, after meeting with Biden administration officials at the Department of Justice in D.C., the Australian delegation held a press conference and said that they would keep up the pressure on the U.S. And one of the members of the delegation was Barnaby Joyce. He's a leader of Australia's National Party, and he's a former deputy prime minister. He said that Assange's only crime was being a journalist. This is an interesting quote from him. He said, quote, literally all sides of the of politics have come together and united on this one key message, which is that an Australian citizen, Julian Assange, should come home. The only crime that we see that Julian Assange has been charged with is the crime of being a journalist, the crime of telling the truth. And the fact that it's an Australian citizen that has been targeted by one of our closest friends and allies is a very real concern to us as politicians and to a growing part of the Australian public, end quote. So the big thing about the Assange case, what the U.S. is trying to lock him up for, is for publishing documents that he obtained from a source, who was Chelsea Manning. And that is a standard journalistic practice. Uh, other media outlets, the New York Times, the Guardian, uh, lots of others published WikiLeaks leaks. Uh, they worked with these outlets for some of the releases. So the precedent that this could set is that all media outlets could uh, face legal penalties for all journalists could be arrested for publishing things that the U.S. government doesn't want them publishing. And some of these Australian MPs, you know, made that point and about the the grave, you know, implications that it would have for press freedom in the U.S. and around the world. So hopefully this growing pressure from the Australians does something there. On Thursday, they were due to meet with some members of Congress. You know, hopefully this is gonna have an effect um all right so the last one here u.s to finance kenyan soldiers for mission to haiti so this article is from kyle anzalone at the libertarian institute the u.s is really pushing for this intervention in haiti so the u.s is preparing a u.n security council resolution to authorize kenya to send its soldiers to haiti 
Washington believes that Nairobi can aid Haiti in restoring order to gang-controlled territory. The Biden administration said the American taxpayer will foot the bill for the deployment and U.S. soldiers will train the Kenyan force. So for a year, the White House has sought a third country to send its soldiers into Haiti as U.N. peacekeepers after Canada resisted American pressure to lead the force. Uh, Kenya agreed to send its troops. So um, Kyle notes that some Haitians, I believe many Haitians, are opposed to the deployment of U.N. soldiers from Kenya. In 2010, U.N. forces released sewage in Haiti, causing a cholera outbreak that killed nearly 10,000 Haitians. And additionally, U.N. soldiers had been credibly accused of war crimes. Um, sorry, these are Kenyan soldiers have been credibly accused of war crimes in Somalia. And then I know with the U.N., you know, peacekeepers, so-called peacekeepers in Haiti were accused of all sorts of horrific things like rape in Haiti. And, um, you know, so there's a dark history of U.N. intervention in Haiti. So many of them uh, oppose this. Uh, but now... The Kenyans are basically uh, saying that they're ready to go. So it looks like this is going to happen. Um, but the U.S. wants, I guess, they might need U.N. Security Council approval since this is going to be under the auspice of the U.N. So we'll see uh, how that plays out. Um, all right. So that is it for the news for today. You could go check out our viewpoints. We have one from Branko Marchteach, Strident Hawks who have Russians in their closet. One from Jeffrey Sachs, the U.S. economic war on China. One from Ramsey Baroud, Tel Aviv's losing brands, Israeli coup, and the death of false democracy. One from Kim Robinson, American war crimes are quickly forgotten. And our spotlight is from Senator Rand Paul, the federal government should not be held hostage for Ukraine funding. So go check all of that out. That's everything for me for the week. I'll be back after the weekend. Uh, you know, again, like, subscribe, all that good stuff on YouTube or Rumble, Odyssey, wherever you prefer to watch. Follow us on Twitter, share the show on social media. All that stuff really helps. And I appreciate everyone that's uh, watching the show or listening to the show. Uh, but I'll be back after the weekend. I hope everybody has a good one. Thanks for listening.